Welcome to the Commodity Culture Podcast, where we interview prominent investors in the commodity space to give you the inside scoop on the emerging commodity super cycle. And now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Commodity Culture, where we break down the commodity space for both new and experienced investors. Before we dive in, standard disclaimer, nothing here is investing advice. Do your own due diligence. And today's guest is the founder of Silver Chartist, a community of precious metals and hard assets traders and investors who are focused on leveraging this commodity super cycle to achieve financial freedom is Mr. Steve Penny. It's great to have you on. You bet, Jesse. Thanks so much for inviting me. I know it's been a while since we've been trying to connect, so glad we we're finally able to do it, and I really appreciate the invite. Absolutely. I'm glad we were able to get together as well. So, of course, with all new guests, I start off with the origin story, so I'd love to hear yours. How did you first discover investing, and how did that lead you to the precious metals and commodities space? Yeah, I'll, I'll try and give the short version of that, but I don't have a background in Wall Street. I didn't go get a college degree in finance. Uh, in fact, I'm a pilot by training. I spent uh, 18 years as a rescue pilot in the Air Force, and but I've always been drawn to the markets. And it was around 2001 that I really began just kind of researching. And I'm the type of person when I really get interested in something, I sense you're similar, is that I'll just dig and dig. And uh, I like to say self-education has the highest return on investment. So I'm self-taught. Um, I've read you know tons and tons of books, and I've just immersed myself in the markets for the last 15 years now. And it all started with a couple of books. Number one, I think that kind of opened my eyes. Some of your listeners may be familiar with the book called The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin. And it kind of teaches you all of this history and how the banking system actually works. And you can go get it, your MBA, you get a PhD in economics, and they're not going to teach you these things. That money is literally borrowed into existence, and it's loaned into existence from a, a private cartel, otherwise known as the Federal Reserve. And I just found it fascinating and want to learn how, how it works. And when you understand how the game is played – and, and the rules of the game, you can use that to your advantage. And uh, I've just been fascinated with it and love sharing what, what I'm learning with others. Uh, don't claim to have all the answers. I'm continually learning, but um, I'm fascinated by the markets. Yeah, G. Edward Griffin, I'm trying to get him on the show. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, so you've mentioned recently in an interview, I saw that the banking failures that occurred in the US are not isolated incidents. And you think that issues with the banking system could persist. So could you explain the risks you currently see and where you think the next cracks may appear in the system? Yeah, I think we don't there's a tendency to overly complicate the situation here. And what it boils down to is right now we are the most overindebted, overly leveraged um you know, the country has never been more overindebted, overly leveraged, both on a federal level and individuals. And when you raise interest rates at the fastest pace ever, with the backdrop of the most overleveraged system ever, things are going to break. It's not rocket science. And with a $32 trillion national debt, every 1% rise in interest rates is another $300 billion plus in interest expenses uh, that the government has to pay for every single year. So th th these interest rates are going to break things. And the Fed is approaching a, a point where they're going to either have to sacrifice the dollar and inflation, let inflation run hot or continue to let things just break and have a uh, massive deflation. And history suggests that that's the last thing they want because then the, the finger of blame gets pointed right at them where if they go towards uh, debasing the currency, um, debt monetization, people don't understand it. And they blame all kinds of people, but they don't blame the people who actually caused it. So I think we're going to see uh, more bailouts, uh, more quantitative easing, more uh, dollar debasement. 
And that's going to be the primary trend for the next handful of years. So I'd like to get your thoughts on the trend of de-dollarization. We're starting to see nations trade for energy outside of the U.S. dollar. How significant is this actually? Because you have people like Peter Schiff, who I had on the show recently, who thinks this trend will accelerate. This will be the death. I believe he actually said the death blow for the dollar um, as the reserve currency. And in the other camp, you have people like Brent Johnson, Keith Weiner. They believe the dollar is much more resilient than people give it credit for. So where do you stand on this issue? And what does this whole trend of de-dollarization mean for the gold and silver markets? Yeah, I love debates between highly intelligent individuals like Brett Johnson and Peter Schiff, who are obviously incredibly smart, but they draw different conclusions. And often when you see those kind of debates, both can be right just in different timeframes. So that's kind of where I fall is, yeah, I fully agree with Peter that this is a major, major story that's not getting enough attention, this whole trend of de-dollarization. Um, but that doesn't mean it's imminent. Um, just by way of review for your listeners, back in 1944, we had the Bretton Woods Agreement, dollar became the world's reserve currency. And then in 1971, we almost lost that as, um, you know, we uh, came off the gold standard. But then we sent Henry Kissinger over in, I think, 1974 to negotiate the petrodollar system, where now you need dollars to buy oil from OPEC. And, you know, those proceeds get cycled back in the U.S. treasuries. So all that to say, with that backdrop, this petrodollar system has created this tremendous worldwide demand for dollars. And now we see OPEC, namely Saudi Arabia, starting to sell their oil in other currencies. They're talking to China, um, even working out potential peace deals with Iran. So this is all bearish for the dollar. And we see the dollar as a percentage of world you know, re reserve um, and, and transactions declining. But it's a slow, steady decline. It's not like it's falling off a cliff. That could happen, but that's not my baseline scenario. I think it's this kind of long, drawn-out process over the hand handful of years, at least, where the dollar becomes no longer becomes the world reserve currency status. You, you can also go back to England when England lost its world reserve currency status. It, it happened over you know uh, decades, not like months. And is there any impacts that you see, whether immediate or in the future? for the gold and silver markets when it comes to this trend of uh, transacting outside of the dollar? I, I like a, the way Jim Rickards puts it. He says a lot of people like to focus on the snowflake that's going to come down on the unstable snowpack and cause the avalanche. It's going to be that snowflake. It could be this snowflake where I think the focus should be on the inherent instability of the system rather than trying to focus on the exact snowflake because black swans by definition are things that people, you can't predict it. It's, I, I'm confident of this. It's it's not going to be something that people – you're not going to see it on an interview. Hey, this is exactly what's going to happen and then that happens. It's going to be something that comes out of nowhere. So I, th I think those things – there's plenty of potential catalysts out there. They're everywhere. But I take comfort as a gold and silver investor in knowing that silver and gold always do a full accounting for the expansion of debt-based fiat currency. They just always do that. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer than we expect. But going back millennia, that's what gold and silver do. And they tend to be the prime beneficiary of all the things that we're seeing right now in this exact environment. So, um, you know, volatility in precious metals doesn't bother me at all. I think we're going much, much higher. Well, let's hone in on the precious metals at the moment. I'd like to go through several of the different uh, commodities that you cover on Silver Chartist. And uh, starting with silver, what, what are you seeing when it comes to the silver market? Obviously, we've had a pullback recently. Um, but when it comes to both the fundamental and technical side of things, what are the main tailwinds you see? And are there any challenges or, or headwinds you could see for silver up ahead? 
Uh, yes. Um, so from a technical perspective, I think the low happened last fall, September, October timeframe when silver dropped down to $17.40. From a technical perspective, we've seen higher highs and higher lows since then. And a lot of people in our camp maybe say, oh, technicals is a bunch of mumbo jumbo. I totally get that. But the institutions, the high net worth individuals, Wall Street people, the generalists, they look at technicals, so we should too. And what they're going to see when they look at a chart is a series of higher highs and higher lows, prices above a rising 200-day moving average. That's an uptrend. And this technical posture tends to put those trading algorithms into a buy-the-dip mode. So I'm personally positioning myself to um, use that as a tailwind. So when we get deep oversold pullbacks to support – um, I think those are fantastic buying opportunities, and I think we're pretty close in silver. Uh, from a technical per- technical perspective, big support down at 22. If we get towards 22 in silver, uh, I think that would be just a fantastic, fantastic opportunity. I'm, I'm keeping some cash on the side. Same thing for like 1810 to 1820, 1830, somewhere in there in gold. Not predicting that we go that low, but it's a possibility, and I want to have some cash available if we do. So what what would you have to see to – go counter to your thesis that silver will perform well moving forward? Are there any headwinds potentially that you see? Um, yes. Th- I'm never married to a thesis and you know I, I can always be wrong and you can't just be, hey, hey this is exactly what's going to happen. Um, I can see things that would prolong this bull market. I'm expecting new all-time highs in gold and probably silver this year. But let's say we broke down uh, below the 200-day moving average in silver and or gold, and we started making lower lows. Even though that wouldn't invalidate the longer-term price projections, it could mean that this drags on longer than we expect. Also, my baseline expectation is that the Fed's going to pause on their rate hiking campaign um, at either this one or the next meeting, you know, sometime soon or in the next handful of months. And I think that's going to be a tailwind for for the metals. But let's say that doesn't happen. Let's say they stick to this higher for longer narrative. Um, well, that that could delay the precious metals bull market. I think that's an unlikely outcome, but those are things to watch out for. That's why these Fed meetings, as you know, asinine as they are, are important for us to watch from a timing perspective. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so annoying to constantly have to follow the Fed and and every single move they make. And was Powell dovish or hawkish? And let's go through every word he said and determine if we can kind of get a glimpse of what they're going to do next. It seems kind of insane that this kind of cabal of um, central bankers uh, have such an impact on on the market overall. And you know, one metal I'm really interested in getting your take on is platinum, because everybody I've talked to about platinum on the show has either dismissed it, said it's a or said it's a completely wild speculation. And that if you want to invest in it, if you want to either buy platinum bullion or invest in platinum companies, feel free, but realize it's a complete speculation. So you've spent a lot of time analyzing and researching platinum. Could you present us with your investment thesis for the metal? Absolutely. And I, I love those first half of those comments you made about people dismiss it and say, oh, it's, uh, I love that sentiment. Uh, I wouldn't disagree that it's a speculation. I'm not sure I'd call it a wild speculation, but yeah, it is a speculation. I don't go all in on platinum or anything. I put about 20% of my physical metal in platinum, but I'd say there's three kind of pillars to the investment thesis for platinum. Number one would be its undervaluation relative to other hard assets, namely gold. I mean, platinum historically almost always trades at a premium to the price of gold. The price of platinum is almost always higher. Well, right now, not only is platinum cheaper than gold, it's about half, half the price of gold. That's a historic anomaly that you don't see very often. And the principle of mean reversion is powerful. 
So if we revert back to the mean, platinum would outperform gold by a factor of roughly two. But if we go to the where we were, I think in 2011 on that ratio, it might be 2008, uh, if memory serves me correctly. Uh, platinum traded at twice the price of gold. So that would mean platinum could outperform gold by a factor of four. And I like that because then I can potentially trade my platinum for a lot more gold down the road. So that's, that's number one. And other investors, I think contrarians are beginning to kind of wake up to that, how cheap platinum is. Uh, number two, um, the hydrogen economy. Uh, whether you think it's a bunch of pie in the sky stuff and you know fantasy projections, regardless, governments and big companies are investing in this uh, hydrogen technology and platinum is a key uh, you know, ingredient in that. So it's, that's going to increase demand. And then number three, I would say, is substitution for palladium. Platinum, The platinum-palladium ratio is also way out of whack. Both are used in catalytic converters. Traditionally, platinum is used in diesel converters. But there's no reason you can't use platinum in you know, regular internal combustion engines. So we're starting to see signs that auto manufacturers are swapping palladium for platinum, which is going to boost demand. So th- those are three drivers right there. And, and there's more. And I, I like just how out of favor it is. And how do you get exposure to platinum outside of actual physical metal? Are there platinum miners you invest in? Is there, there an ETF? What, what is the way that you typically um, get exposure to maybe the more speculative part of, of the platinum sector, not, not so much the bullion? Yeah, that, that's the real challenging part. Um, I, I do mostly the physical because it's really hard to find a pure play platinum miner. Most platinum deposits are polymetallic in nature, so you're getting exposure to a whole bunch of other metals as well. N- nothing wrong with that. I tend to be bullish on those metals, but it's hard to get pure play. So I, I really don't have any that I, I want to own for the long term. Like there's a couple like platinum group metals. You know, it's got the word platinum in it. So when platinum has a run, it gets leverage. So I like there's a couple stocks like that as trading vehicles, but um, I, stocks like that I'm not really interested in just buying and holding. So primarily just the the metal. And then there's there's an ETF. PPLT is the ETF uh, to give exposure just to the price. Uh, I don't really like investing in that because JP Morgan, again, is the custodian. So I, I don't like anything to do with JP Morgan. But that's that's another tool available. So let's talk about uranium now. Um, you know, I, we've discussed the fundamentals of uranium quite a bit on this show. But nevertheless, I'd like to hear your thoughts and maybe any technical analysis you've done uh, on uranium and, and the related equities that, that you could share. Sure. And I'll, I'll drop you a chart after this so you can maybe include it in the replay. But what's really nice about uranium, uh, so what, just talking about the technicals, the metal itself looks very bullish on a long-term perspective. It's in an uptrend. It looks like 2018 was the low and you know, it was sub $20 for uranium, which was ridiculous. Um, here we are up just above $50. Next targets are about 63, 73, 100, and then the all-time high is 148 on uranium. I think all of those levels are going to be taken out in the fullness of time. That doesn't mean I won't be scaling out along the way, but I think that's where we're headed. Um, what's interesting is the equities are deeply discounted relative to the metal. The metal looks fine technically, but the equities are just down in the doldrums. Most of them still in you know ugly have ugly charts below their declining 200-day moving averages. So as a contrarian. I'm drawn very much to the uranium equities right now. Uh, my two favorite ETFs are URNM, URNJ, um, and you know, I'm scaling in just slowly, just nibbling on those because um, you know, that ratio of URNM versus the metal itself is sitting right at key support. And I'll drop you that chart as well. So that it shows the, the f- most favorable entry points right now are in the uranium equities, not so much the physical metal. 
And do you also um, invest in single companies in the uranium space? And and if so, where do you generally look? Do you stick to the the bigger producers, the Cameco's, the Kazatom Proms? Um, do you look at the development space? Do you ever speculate on explorers? Um, how, how do you play that part of the sector? I do. And the, the whole sector is so small. Last time I checked, there was about 100 uranium miners globally, pure play uranium miners. And most of them don't even produce any metal yet. So they're early stage, small market cap stocks. So you get plenty of uh, leverage, plenty of volatility, even in the bigger names. So I don't really see the need to go out on the you know explorers and developers, those early stage ones. I like kind of the you know near term producers or ones that ter- can turn on production pretty soon. Um, but if I could do it all again, I think uh, stock selection is important. But to me, my edge is timing the turns. So I'd rather just get exposure to the ETF, and that if you can, you know capture 20% of the top, you know, the middle 80% of a move and scale out 20% of the top and kind of scale in near 20% of the bottom. That's an easier way to do it. Um, I feel like maybe I kind of rambled there and didn't answer your original question. I, I do invest in the individual equities. I've got 10 of them, but I also like those ETFs. Yeah, no, that that was a great answer. Um, so I was wondering what your thoughts were on the battery metals. Maybe we can hone in on lithium here, but if you wanted to speak about any of the other notable ones, that would be great. Two, you were talking earlier about platinum and its relation to hydrogen. You know, I, I think we're in a similar situation with this whole EV revolution that, in my opinion, it doesn't feel like it's going to happen as fast as the political class is presenting it. So that doesn't mean that they won't try it. And and for, for that reason, we will need battery metals. How do you see things? Is there a big opportunity in, in lithium and other battery metals right now? There are. Uh, lithium isn't one that I follow too closely. I like copper and to a lesser extent nickel because I think those are more uh, – more um, have a higher probability of um, outperforming on the way up. They're, they're more surefire bet. Lithium is plentiful. It's just you know mining it is difficult. Um, so it's not necessarily a supply problem with lithium. Where copper, I see a major structural supply deficit going forward. So it's an easier way for me to play the sector. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. These pie-in-the-sky – demand forecasts going out to the next decade of copper, like they say, we're going to need more copper in the next 10 years than the world has ever used. I'm not sure I buy that, but if it's even half of that is true, there's still, the price is too low to incentivize the new production that's going to be needed. Copper has been underinvested in for decades and the world's going to need more copper regardless of these demand projections. You know, If even a fraction of that comes to fruition, we're going to need a lot more copper and the price is going to have to be higher. So I view it, I put about 5% of my overall portfolio and some battery metal names, and I just sit and wait. I ride out the volatility. It's a smaller percentage, but I think there's a lot of upside potential. So when it comes to copper, um, there's some people who say, you know, there's a recession on the horizon and that is going to impact the price of copper. And thus, that's kind of their bear case, at least within the short to midterm. Um, I've talked to Lobo Tigre several times about copper. He said it's hands down the commodity he's most bullish on for the next decade. However, in the shorter to midterm, we could see um, you know, some recessionary effects which push the price down. So what, what are your thoughts there on a potential recession and its effect on the copper price? Yeah, 100%. Um, I agree with that. I'm, I'm, I can see copper going up in a recession because uh, I expect stagflation to be the persistent theme of the next you know handful of years, maybe 10 years out. So in a stagflationary environment where you've got rampant inflation, but a de- declining economy, yeah, I think copper would do just fine. But even if it doesn't, I, I expect deflationary impulses along the way. And I, I view those as buying opportunities. 
So the way I mitigate that risk is position size. 5% of the overall portfolio in these battery metal names. If we get a big deflationary impulse, I've got some cash on the side and that's where I'll look to scale in. I'm willing to be really patient with copper because it's a 10 plus year time uh, horizon for me. Do you look at the energy space at all, the the, the oil and gas sector? And what, what are your feelings on where that's positioned? Because once again, we're we're in a situation where it's kind of, you know, gone to very high price levels last year. We're kind of chopping between the $65 to $80 a barrel at the moment. Um, we are seeing a lot of the fundamentals appearing to be very bullish in terms of reduced inventories, increased demand, particularly coming from emerging economies. Um, and yet... You know, we're seeing bearish news headlines everywhere. People are once again pointing to the fact, well, there's a recession up ahead that's going to kill demand. Uh, do, do you watch that space? And, and if so, what are your thoughts? I, I do watch it, but I do not consider myself by any means to be an expert. So therefore, I've got limited investment exposure to oil and natural gas. I do trade them and I trade the ETFs. Um, for, for me, there's there's so many cross currents to be a, a good analyst in that sector. You've got OPEC who can distort the natural supply demand you know, picture by maybe increasing production for non-economic reasons, you know, political reasons. So you have to enter that world to kind of uh, really be an expert in that area. I look at the charts. I occasionally trade them, but I don't have any long-term investments, although I'm, I'm very bullish long-term. Well, lastly, I would like to just get your thoughts, a more broader question on time horizon, because you mentioned that you trade as well as invest for the long term. So how do you balance those two things? How do you determine whether a position is going to be a short term trade or something you're going to hold for the long run? And, and how do you all arrange that in terms of your, your investment strategy? Yeah, absolutely love that question because a lot of people don't make a distinction between trading and investing. They're very different things, different games with a different set of rules. And there's no right answer for everybody. But I think it is critical that every single investor have a strategy. Whenever you push the buy button, you should have a subsequent plan of when are you going to push the sell button? Because a lot of people don't don't have an answer to that question. When are you going to sell? I, I don't know. <laughs> well, th those are the kinds of people who ride it right back down, unfortunately. Uh, so my, my strategy is I take 10% of the overall account and I trade the swings. And the goal there is generating monthly cash flow that can be cycled back in. You know, that's the goal, uh, being transparent. I don't make prof uh, not profitable every single month. Mo most months I am, but that's the trading account. And then I've got a longer term investing account starting with physical metal that I'm holding for the long term, you know, triple digit silver, 10,000 plus gold. I think that's coming down the road. Uh, then I've got a basket of royalty stocks that I'm planning to hold until silver reaches at least 50, gold you know, around 3,000. So I'm just kind of hodling those to use a crypto term. And then I've got more of an active investing account with mining stocks. And you know, I, I when we get overbought in multiple timeframes against resistance, well, that's a good time to take some off. And then when sentiment gets way down in the dumps, everyone wants to throw in the towel. That's where you scale back in. So th that's kind of my overall strategy. It's not for everybody. It, to me, it strikes that nice balance of I don't have to be at my computer all day long day trading, but I can also use the market volatility to my advantage while having long-term exposure. So th that's my strategy. It works really well for me, but everyone has to kind of find that balance of what fits their own lifestyle. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Steve. It's been an extremely enlightening conversation. For those who want to learn more, uh, could you fill us in on Silver Chartist? where people can find that online. And if there's anywhere else you want to direct people, uh, feel free to do that as well. Sure. I'm, I'm on Twitter. I'm not as active as I used to be, but just at Silver Chartist. But re where the real uh, content happens is uh, silverchartist.com. It's a kind of a low ticket subscription service. We've got a great team and it's a fully transparent over the shoulder service. So I 
share my exact portfolio with the members, what I exactly own, screenshots of my portfolio. And whenever I buy or sell, I send out a real-time alert instantly so people get that full transparency. doesn't mean you know I'm perfect. They see my mistakes and all, but hopefully that transparency helps people to make better decisions in their own investing. So uh, silvercharts.com if you want to check that out. Great. Well, I'll put links to both silverchartist.com and your Twitter profile in the description if people want to check that out. Thanks once again so much for joining us, Steve, and sharing your knowledge with our audience. You bet. Thank you so much for inviting me on, and hopefully we can uh, connect again down the road. It's really nice talking to you. Commodity Culture is a podcast that covers investing in commodities and natural resources. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe so you are always alerted of the latest episodes. 